So I want to invite you to open um, your own Bible or the Pew Bible to pay, if you're looking at the Pew Bible, to page 838. To Mark chapter 3. I'll be reading verses 20 to 35. I want to give you a little intro to this uh, particular passage. If you'll notice, if you're looking at the Pew Bible, it's seems to start ahead of the subsection um, title. The reason for this is this particular um, passage demonstrates a feature of the Gospel of Mark, which you can see in lots of different places called a Markin sandwich. Now, let me, I'll briefly explain it to you. If you look at it, the first couple of verses talk about Jesus relating to his um, family. Then the middle section talks about Jesus relating to the scribes, and it comes back to Jesus relating to his family. So it's basically you hear one story, and it's interrupted by another story. It's, to maybe put in a fun way, it's sort of like an Oreo cookie. You have, you know, the cookie part, and you have the frosting part, and then you have the cookie part again. And they all can be taken separately, if you want but they're really meant to be taken in together. So with that in mind, let's listen to the scripture. Then Jesus went home, and the crowds gathered again so they could not even eat. And when his family heard it, they went out to seize him, for they were saying, he is out of his mind. And the scribes, who came down from Jerusalem were saying, He is possessed by Beelzebub, and by the prince of demons he casts out demons. And he called them to him and said in parables, How can Satan cast out Satan? If a kingdom is divided against itself, the kingdom cannot stand. And if a house is divided against itself, that house will not be able to stand. And if Satan has risen up against himself and is divided, he cannot stand, but is coming to an end. But no one can enter a strong man's house and plunder his goods unless he first binds the strong man. Then indeed he may plunder his house. Truly I say to you, all sins will be forgiven the children of man, and whatever blasphemies they utter, But whoever blasphemes against the Holy Spirit never has forgiveness, but is guilty of an eternal sin. For they were saying, he has an unclean spirit. And his mother and his brothers came, and standing outside, they sent to him and called him. And a crowd was sitting around him, And they said to him, your mother and brothers are outside seeking you. And he answered them, who are my mother and my brothers? And looking at those who sat around him, he said, here are my mother and my brothers. For whoever does the will of God, he is my brother and sister and mother. This is the word of the Lord. 
I was riding back from a conference and riding with a pastor from Sudan. And he was watching the snow falling outside of the car window. And initially he was fascinated by it because Sudan is mostly desert and it rarely gets below 60 degrees for a low temperature. And year-round, it's 90 degrees for a high temperature. That's the average high temperature. Well, we got back to where we left the car, and the snow had piled up there in western Pennsylvania, and he got out for just a moment. And the snow and the wind were whipping around, and I headed to di- over to dig out my car so I could go home, and I heard him say, to live here, you must be crazy. Well, when we experience something that we don't have any context for, or when we see something that we've never seen before, it can seem crazy. If we see someone acting in a way we don't understand, we can call them crazy. The way that we try to make sense of this thing or this person that doesn't fit into our expectations can be to call them crazy. It keeps us from having to see things differently. It keeps us from having to figure things out on a deeper level. Well, Jesus, a son, a brother, had crowds gathering to the point that people couldn't even sit down and eat. That's how many people were packed in around him. Well, his family went to get him, and they were saying that he was out of his mind. Well, maybe they're just trying to protect him. Maybe they're just trying to make sense of this situation that they don't understand. But calling him crazy, calling Jesus crazy, diminishes who he is. Even though defining Jesus as crazy can allow his family to make sense of this situation, it ignores God's power at work in Jesus. They're not able to see that it's God's power at work. Well, we say things about people. We call them crazy so we don't have to deal with who they are, with what they're doing. Consider how you might think about a generic homeless person um, panhandling on the side of the road, or you might think, oh, that's just someone who's crazy. That's a lazy person. But think about how differently you would consider John who got cancer, whose radiation treatment weakened him so much that he couldn't no longer work, and then lost his job and his home and suffered serious depression as a result. Would you just call him crazy? We sometimes call people crazy so we don't have to deal fully with who a person is. 
We label people so we can stay in control of a situation. And writing someone off as crazy makes it easy to ignore how God is at work. Writing, just writing someone off as crazy makes it easy to disregard who God is asking us to be in a situation. Well, while Jesus' family is calling him crazy, the scribes come saying that Jesus is possessed by the prince of demons. They literally demonize Jesus. They're not just looking to diminish Jesus. They're looking to dehumanize him. The scribes labeled Jesus not just to discredit Jesus or not just so people won't take Jesus seriously. The scribes don't misunderstand. They deliberately define Jesus as evil. They say, by the prince of demons, he casts out demons. The scribes want the people to be against Jesus. Well, when we feel that we're against someone, or someone is against us, we naturally want people to be against that person too. We want people to be on our side. And so we quickly move from calling someone crazy to defining them by dehumanizing comments, by making them into the evil other. Without getting too deeply into it, you have to consider our recent political discourse. Consider how politicians have been defining those against them. And I'll pick one very uncrude example. One presidential candidate said, we have to beat those savages. When we begin to dehumanize, to demonize, this is what happens. This happens when the stakes are raised. People cut others down when they're worried, when they're insecure, when they feel out of control. Well, the leadership of Neilsville recently sent a letter asking to begin a discernment conversation with the local network of Presbyterian USA churches about leaving and affiliating with another Presbyterian denomination. Worry and insecurity can easily lead this conversation into harmful demonizing. That's been evidenced by the scribes, evidenced in our political discourse. Each, each side can start defining the other as evil. And one side then becomes those pagans. The other side becomes those schismatics. This can even seep into how we treat one another within the congregation as tensions rise. We feel compelled to line people up on our side, being against the other side. Someone on the other side of the conversation, doesn't matter which side, can quickly become a blind troublemaker or something worse. 
But the fact is, is that we will flourish as we consider what God is doing, as we consider who God is shaping us to be in this situation, rather than falling into defining the other side negatively. When we do this kind of negative defining, we ignore how God may be at work. When we do this kind of negative defining, we disregard who God is asking us to be in this situation. And if negative defining goes on long enough, it becomes dehumanizing. And then it no longer matters what you do or how you hurt the other person. When we focus on defining another, we can forget who we are. Those people just become an evil them, and we're willing to do things we normally abhor. Their evilness becomes an excuse for any action we might take. You see, this is exactly what happened in the scripture. The scribes, they demonized Jesus, and it sets the stage so people would be willing to kill him. You don't feel bad about killing someone who's demon-possessed, do you? Or, I mean, at least you can talk yourself and others into that being a good and necessary thing. Their demonizing of Jesus as any demonizing often is, leads to serious consequences. Demonizing often also is taken just to a level that seems absurd. In this case, the scribes basically label God's work as evil. Well, Jesus defends himself. He he does respond to their flawed, malicious defining of him. But if you notice, he doesn't respond by dehumanizing them. He doesn't respond in kind. He doesn't get caught up in who they are. Jesus does point out the flaws in their logic without saying it is flawed. If you look at the scripture, you can see pretty clear statements that he says in rebuttal. And I'll just summarize them. He says, how can pure evil take evil out of people? How can people be freed of evil without the evil one being made powerless? When someone attacks us unfairly, we don't have to ignore it. That's not what this is about. However, as disciples of Jesus, we don't demean someone for their flawed argument. Let's say someone says, well, Christians just hate other people and only tell others what to do. Well, we don't go to someone and say, well, that's a stupid generalization. You must be crazy. You need to think straight but we also don't ignore them. We take that opportunity to share about how the God that we follow is a God of love who's at work shaping us to love others and offering forgiveness. 
Jesus doesn't ignore the attacks of the scribes because deciding that the spirit that's at work in Jesus is evil, that's an eternal sin. You see, Jesus wanted people to receive forgiveness. And it matters that Jesus is not evil because he is the one who brings freedom from the bonds of evil. If we don't accept him, we cannot be freed from sin. It's actually Satan that's the power that's actively against the love of God. And if we flip it around and consider the active love of God is evil, then we cannot accept forgiveness. Tom Wright, a commentator, puts it another way. If you decide that a doctor who's performing life-saving surgery is a murderer, you won't let him perform that life-saving surgery. If someone calls the Holy Spirit the spirit of Satan, no matter what happens, it will just prove to them that Satan is at work. If you confuse the Holy Spirit with an evil spirit, you put yourself outside of God's forgiveness because you won't accept the forgiveness that's offered. Now, I don't want you to worry because if you're concerned right now that you're outside of God's forgiveness, that concern means that you're open to forgiveness and not set against forgiveness. Well, now we come back to Jesus' family. Remember, his family doesn't see that this is God's work. They just see Jesus messing up their lives. And they want to remove him from his relationship with the crowds. We see how people deliberately, like the scribes, and, or maybe even out of good intentions, like Jesus' families, look to separate people from one another. They look to divide. And we need to find a deeper source of connection. We need to find a source of connection that's deeper than the present political, social, and theological debates allow. And that unifier, that source of connection, is Jesus. Jesus expands the circle of love. He calls those who before were just members of the crowd, he calls them his brothers, sisters, even mother, if they do the will of God. Those who do the will of God are disciples. Doing the will of God is not just being able to talk about Jesus. Doing the will of God is not just knowing what you should do or what someone else should do. Doing the will of God means accepting the forgiveness and healing that Jesus offers us and then sharing it. Jesus doesn't define us by our failings. Jesus offers forgiveness. Jesus defines who we are in relationship to him. And accepting forgiveness, we are connected in relationship with Jesus. We discover who we are 
not by defining others who are against us, not by defining someone else in a dehumanizing way. We discover who we are not by calling someone else crazy. We discover who we were made to be. We discover who we are by drawing near to Jesus and doing God's will. Disciples are defined by Jesus' relationship with us. Well, there is that temptation, though, to define ourselves by what we are against. There's that temptation to spend our energy pointing out who we believe is unfaithful, even demonic. And this is especially true in times when we're worried, times when we're uncertain, times when the stakes are high. But pointing out someone as flawed distracts us from paying attention to what God is doing in our lives or who God is asking us to be in that situation. We, we can get caught up in defining someone else and forget that as disciples, our identity comes not from what that other person isn't, but from who Jesus is, from our connection with him. So as this congregation enters this disaffiliation discernment conversation. Let us be defined by our relatedness to one another in Jesus as forgiven disciples. Let us focus on our identity as former crowd members who now are connected as brothers and sisters of Jesus. Let us put our energy as disciples towards seeking to learn and discern God's will and doing it. Let us not be distracted from doing the will of God as we worship God, as we grow spiritually, as we go serve, and as we celebrate changed lives together. Let us focus on our connection with Jesus as individuals, but also our connection with one another as brothers and sisters in Christ, freed from evil and forgiven by him. Let us pray. Jesus, we thank you for gathering us together. We thank you for connecting us with you and with one another. We thank you that you help us understand better who we're made to be. Continue to give us strength in those places within us that are broken. Those places within us where we war against evil. Come and be within us, Holy Spirit. Bring us your life everlasting. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. Let's remain seated as we sing of our Redeemer who we find great value in.